Great stories, epic songs, Podplays. If you enjoy the new and original music you discover in Podplays, be sure to stream or download these songs anywhere you currently get your music. Simply search the artist name Podplays, and please remember to like, follow, and share with all your friends. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the pod play entitled Last Flag on Oak Island, Part 2. Adapted from the screenplay written by J.R. Jordan Baines. Relaxing on the deck of the second wind, Maruso still sits in his deck chair, listening intently as Lauren finishes reading aloud. Maps are fake. How do you know? I mean, it looks like it marks where those triangles were found on the island by one digging operation. So this doesn't have anything to do with the stone triangles? They're, they're two different things? I'm telling you, the map's faked. But maybe there was more work done here than just the pit. According to that WK map, the pit was dug or the map marked in 1620 or 1780. Either way, it's altered. Yeah, but why those two years? The stones have to do with magnetic and true north bearings. Got a pen? She hands him a pen and a copy. He turns it over and begins to write. The difference between true north and magnetic north changes constantly. And some bearings are only accurate at certain times. Here, look at this. He draws a circle. The first triangle the stones made points true north, not north by a compass. If it had been done by a magnetic compass, there'd be a declination figure, the variation between true and magnetic north. He divides the circle into pie slices, then rests the pin on a slice. Magnetic declination has never been zero in this area. There's always been a variation. What it boils down to is that the bearings for the triangles were shot off the North Star, but with precision rivaling the best navigation today. Two parties worked the island at some point before 1795? Uh, Could be. Pizarro was pillaging in the 1500s. A lot of Mesoamerican Indians picked up and went somewhere. If they did any work with the limestone Clements found, it was just to modify existing natural tunnels. And no, I don't think they buried anything valuable. Maybe made an underground passage to the mainland. The tunnels Lucy and Saul both found were pieces to an older puzzle, not the pit. Yeah, but why isn't the antique dealer's map even a possibility? I mean, aside from the date. Lauren looks at the Kid Palmer WK-1669 treasure map. Then Maruso points at the words Mar-Dell on the map. Pure hoax. This right here, sea of, means nothing. Nautical maps from 16th and 17th centuries used Mar del Norte for the Atlantic Ocean. He points at 64 degrees 18 west on the map. And the coordinates used for location. This is marked off of the Royal Greenwich Observatory built in 1675. If the map was marked in 1669, 
it would have used the old island of Ferro, now Hedro in the Canary Islands as the meridian line, making it located at 316 degrees east. Ugh, the location reads too new. Yep. And closer inspection showed that the map was actually a copy and changed at that. But what would you think if you didn't know about Brielle? You can make a lot of ideas fit. I worked with a guy on the Chester docks who had an idea. The beauty of it is that it needs no substantiation. So generic it could have happened to a hundred different ships from a hundred different ports. Suppose it's the early 18th century, around 35. 1735, the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Cuba. Eight Spanish ships are following the Gulf Stream. Spanish ships encounter a rough storm. They are fighting just to stay afloat and ride it out. They catch a storm hundreds of miles south of Nova Scotia. One ship is separated, driven north by the gale. One Spanish ship is alone, damaged, listing, and heading north. On board, the captain is working feverishly with the navigator. A few days later, the winds have calmed, but the vessel is severely damaged. She's taking on water, in bad need of repair. The captain knows they can't hope to rejoin the fleet, wherever it is now. He's not even sure where it is. The ship is low in the water as it sails slowly toward Oak Island. They hobble into Mahone Bay, which is uncharted, unpopulated to their knowledge, incurring more damage along the shoals. The ship is grounded on the east end of Oak Island. There are over a hundred crewmen, also common for the time. The Spanish captain manages to sail to the east side of the island and get anchored. Longboats lower into the water with the rowers, bosun, and the ship carpenter. On board, the captain, navigator, and merchant agents speak together. They survey the hull, then look to the island. The ship's damage is assessed. It'll take a month to make her seaworthy. On board are the usual carpentry tools, including a forge. After repairs, they can either sail to the nearest Spanish colony, Florida, or try to draft the Newfoundland Basin and head to the Azores. On board are key personnel likely to accompany a ship, merchant agents owning the cargo, maybe an auditor for the Crown, a mining engineer who supervised work in Mexico. It wouldn't be uncommon. Anyone with an interest in the cargo doesn't want to sail at home on a damaged ship. On the island, the Spanish crew and shipmen begin cutting down trees, making camp, and hauling water. They gather everything they'll need to live while making repairs on the ship, the ship that is now dry docked and canted with the repair side facing up. Plus, without cargo, the ship's lighter, faster, necessary for a lone ship in foreign waters. The island provides fresh water, lumber, and game to support repairs in the crew. It's also comprised of clay, firm enough to forego cribbing. On the island, in the money pit area, merchant agents, the ship's carpenter, and Spanish captain nod in agreement. A Spanish engineer holds a shovel as he walks off measurements, heading towards Smith's Cove. Several sturdy crewmen follow with shovels and pickaxes. They dig down 15 feet deep. The money pit shaft is dug, 
Secondary crews branched tunnels to Smith's Cove and maybe South Shore for flooding. More corridors are tunneled and vaults constructed to hold each merchant's cargo separately. Go ahead, say it. Ha, the Swiss bank theory. Inside the money pit, the crew dig secondary tunnels horizontally out from the main shaft. From above, the engineer watches, wipes his sweaty brow, then looks towards Smith's Cove. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, part of the crew has built a coffer dam at mean low tide in both coves. The one at Smith's is used to dry dock the ship. The whole operation is meticulously mapped. The cargo can be retrieved by digging straight down through virgin soil, like a Swiss bank. The engineer stands 100 feet away from the money pit area and makes a map, marking a spot. He looks to the east and walks off a measure of 30 feet, then marks the map again. Or maybe floodgates are set up for future use. Once these are employed, the flood tunnel can be walked or the pit pumped out. Back in 1995, Lauren and Maruso stand at the rail of the second wind, looking out at the island. You and a Chester man came up with this? So then the captain kills off most of the crew and the engineer and sails home under false pretenses to return another day, right? Not in this version. Care is taken not to leave any sign of activity on the island. Back in 1735, the Atlantic Ocean and the patched-up Spanish ship is back at sea. With the repairs finished, the ship sets sail. Back in sunny Spain, the merchants have written off the cargo as lost or plundered. After all, it's been three or four months. On board, the crew battles terrible cracks in the hold, obviously losing. A week into their return voyage, the ship starts leaking. In the ship hold, the embattled crew works frantically to bail out leaking water as bilge pumps run nonstop. Loose debris shifts in the rising water. Pumps are manned, but it's not enough. The weather is rough. The ship is now heavy from leaking. In haste to depart, the repairs weren't properly seasoned. Planks swell, buckle, loosen. On the rough waters, the failing ship loses the battle. She's overcome with seawater. Most on board jump into the ocean to escape. A few of the crew make it safely into longboats that are floating around the sinking ship. The defeated Spanish captain stands alone on the main deck, watching helplessly. An hour later, the whole mess is on the ocean floor, maps included. Of course, it's almost all circumstantial. Are there any names in this theory? Nope. Purely hypothetical. Using public knowledge of the island. It's so simple. So no government to vouch for it or verify that it didn't happen, given the numbers of shipwrecks on the Gulf Stream in any given year. No one would believe it. Too general. Not romantic enough. No pirates or Indian or Templars or even Vikings. Too probable. So, Brielle's concept isn't so far-fetched. Something in the deep just called my name Something makes me think it's not a game 
fighting I keep losing to something in the deep something I can't see is coming strong something I can feel is hanging on the cold truth it's tied to something in the deep deeper than a dark that seems to have no end the storm it falls apart in waves it comes again it comes following day, in the warmth of the little cottage kitchen, Carlos and Lauren sit at a table working on the journal. Carlos dabs at his watery eyes with a tissue. Brielle mentions the Lady Greys in Mecklenburg Waters, one of the bay's names during this time. He's already bypassed Fort Shannon in Virginia. He turns a journal page. The page shows a map of Mahone Bay, sketched in ink. Lauren looks closely. Reduced about 30%, this map would fit exactly. He spent much time convincing Stewart to take the risks. Their collaboration begins. We only need to find the map or the plans. He'd have to write them down. Yes, that's exactly what he did. This is the only map in the journal. Riel never made a map with an X. He wrote out the directions. Yeah, but I saw a large X. The smudged page, yes, but there was no island beneath that X. Every word will count. I've got my own part to play in our little charade. Rudy plays poker at some gent's house on Wednesdays. I'm invited tonight. Don't laugh. I think if I lose quickly enough, they'll deal me out after a few mercy killings. <laughs> <laughs> I'll revise my notes while you're gone. As night falls on her little beachside dwelling, Lauren pours a glass of iced tea and settles in at the pine table to work on the journal and stacks of notes. Lauren quickly stashes her work in the cold oven. She goes into the sitting room with the tea, grabs a magazine and plops down on the sofa.
Magazine in hand, she opens the front screen door to see Miles. Um, good evening, Lauren. I-, I didn't think anyone was home. She flicks on the porch light, temporarily blinding him. You thought I played poker? Well, no. But I didn't think your old man would leave you here alone. You are alone, aren't you? Yes, I am. Come in. He steps in, scanning the room. Lauren closes the door. So, what are you looking for? Nothing. Do you want some tea? Yeah, sure. She heads into the kitchen. Eventually, he follows. So, um, Canada Day is Saturday. Uh, I suppose you have plans. I do. Actually, I'm going to be busy while I'm here. You and Maruso sure patch things up quick enough. Yep, sometimes things just happen that way. So, how serious is it? (laughs) Why are you so interested? An uneasiness fills the little kitchen, and Lauren stands up. I think you better leave. Nah, Lauren, I'm sorry. He stands, reaches for her hand. She eludes him and opens the back door for him to leave. Miles steps into the sitting room, looking it over before Lauren enters from the kitchen. I don't give up that easily. He fingers the knickknacks on the secretary's shelf. I suggest you do. So it's only been a week and you two are back together, huh? It's really none of your business. Well, I'm gonna find out why your old man is really here, Lauren. What have you got, a map? Is that what you're talking about, the pit again? Well, it's why you're here. Get out! You should tell me now, I'll only be- Get out! All right. He laughs and strolls casually out the front door. Lauren slams it shut, twists the lock, then leans her back to it until she hears the pickup engine start and Miles finally driving away. It's sunrise on Oak Island and the cottage kitchen smells of fresh coffee, bacon, and eggs. The aroma filling the tiny space where Lauren and Carlos are already hard at work on the journal makes it hard to concentrate. New entry dated June 1. Brielle agrees to the plan Stewart draws up. 1776, Oak Island. Brielle and Stewart are standing around the treasure pit being dug by the Lady Grey's crew. Buckets, ropes, ladders, and tools are used to dig. The area has fewer trees now, many cut down for scaffolding and other use. Brielle nods bemusedly as Stuart whispers something to him the rest of the crew can't hear, but wish they could. And Ensign Williams goes to the mainland with other crewmen to bring 78 natives to the island, which they call Port Gloucester. Ensign Williams, 30, British, leads two lines of 78 Mi'kmaq Indian men, ages 20 to 35, chained together to Brielle. New entry. Two days later, he describes Stewart's plans as ingenious and resourceful, but they will not accommodate his separate deposit. Brielle and Stewart glance at Ensign Williams and the Mi'kmaq, then turn back to the pit. The Mi'kmaq are frightened, angry, and helpless. He writes, inland from the cold, westward. Stewart has the mind to make use of a wide sinkhole to discourage curiosity. In a copse of oak, that's the only useful reference. 
He expected to find the pit again with that one phrase. He isn't concerned with the location of the actual pit because he doesn't plan to bury it there, June 8th. 1776, Smith's Cove by torchlight. Steward oversees 40 Micmac, stacking rocks and sandbags to dam up the cove. From the land working out to the water, 24 of the Gray's crew dig the flood tunnel leading from the money pit site to the cove. Steward insists supervising the night shift. 24 of the crew will work the depository under my watch. Ensign Williams today will govern the 40 heathen at Small Cove. I would say that's our Smith's Cove. He also called it South Cove. At the Money Pit site, the Gray's crew dig furiously on the shaft as Brielle oversees. The sinkhole is widened to a breadth of about a rod. That's roughly 15 feet. Seems the hole was dug angled to one side, not in the middle of the clearing. Looking over into the pit, 20 feet down are one crew using pickaxes and spades to fill the wooden buckets with dirt. At the top, another crew uses ropes to pull the loaded buckets up. The plans include a flood tunnel from the small cove. He's rambling now about stitchery. No new entry for two pages, but surely this cannot be a single day. The 12-hour shifts are unbearably long. Brielle and Williams find the location for Brielle's depository. Down in the pit, a crewman chops a hole in the side of the clay wall. Not their depository, but my own Brielle's. No definite location yet. He says the Lady Grey is dry docked, just up the beach at Small Cove, and soon she'll be wearing his flag. His flag? Seems Brielle romanticizes his adventure as a sort of piracy. Let's stop and rest your eyes. Not now. Brielle had no qualms about enslaving the Micmac from nearby islands. Typical civilized attitude. He never entertained the thought of actually using Stewart's shaft after seeing how it was to be constructed. Rudy enters from the back door, flushed. Oh, every kid in the province must be on a field trip. I'm surprised Norman Moreau is allowing tours. He owns the lots near the causeway. The last two years, he's hardly let anyone in. How much of the island does he own? Roughly the western third. Ugh, Miles is here. Carlos and Lauren quickly gather the journal materials and put them in the sitting room secretary. She casually leans her back to the sink counter. Carlos sits down at the table. Rudy opens the back door. Saul and Miles are standing there. Well, well, Saul. Come on in. Saul and Miles enter the kitchen. Strained looks pass between Lauren and Miles. Saul sizes up Lauren and winks. Now I see why Miles is spending so much time over here. Now, Mead, I hear you're interested in the pit. Rudy gestures to the extra kitchen chairs. Saul and Miles sit down at the pine table. Rudy and Lauren take a seat as well. Well, who isn't? Any treasure hunt going on for two centuries is fascinating. Listen, Rudy, I know your friend is here for the pit. I'm here to cut a deal. Now you have no equipment, but you must have something. We can work together. Share 50-50 after royalties. 
I can provide men, engineering, pumps, all of it. What are we supposed to supply? We're too old to... You have a map. We'll partner up. You mean you've got all that equipment but no map? Isn't that an expensive waste? I know you've got a map made. Blackbeard made three. We don't have any pirate treasure map. Besides, the way that year bright woman is going, the whole item will go down before anything comes up. She's been here? What'd she offer? She won't honor it. She'll cut you out. Lucy hasn't been over. We have no interest in the money pit. Not the type you're suggesting. Saul stands up. It's safer to work with me than against me, Maddock. You know that. Think about it. I'm sure you wouldn't want anything to happen to your girl. Carlos gets to his feet and jabs a finger at Saul's chest. You leave my daughter out of this, Clemens, and keep your son off the stoop or I'll have him permanently removed. We'll see about that. Saul and Miles slam out the back door. Oh, I hope he isn't serious, Rudy. He can't be. If he tries anything or if that son of- They won't. I didn't tell Miles anything, but he might have made something up to appease Saul. Miles wouldn't lie to his father. Saul must have decided it was time for the direct approach. If that boy gives you any trouble, the captain puts him in dry dock. I think Miles is safe. Perhaps, but Saul may not be. We'll return to the pod play, Last Flag on Oak Island, in 60 seconds. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We now return to the pod play entitled Last Flag on Oak Island. Over at the Yearbright operation, we find Lucy and the head engineer starting the day setting up LiDAR equipment at Borehole 11C. Nearby, a sonar waits in a pickup bed. A crane hovers at the borehole site as workmen attach long cables. Near 6 p.m. at the Clemens office, Miles sits before Saul's desk, his mood sour. A map of the island's limestone tunnels spreads out on the desk. Saul enters the office and glances at Miles. Lucy's got a new toy. I already saw it. Saul sits behind the desk and spreads out a second map of the island. Well, I'm not sure. Some sonar thing. A LIDAR. Makes sense. Maybe we should just throw a dot. You've got little appreciation for- 30 years of hard work. That's enough. I had enough two years ago, Pops. Saul leans back in his chair and estimates Miles. When you sober up, we'll take this outside. I'm sober enough. Rudy doesn't have a map. 
Saul sorts through a stack of mail, already bored with miles. At noon the next day, Maruso pulls up in the jeep, gets out with the mail, and returns Rudy's wave from the lighthouse beacon where he's cleaning windows. In Lauren's cottage room, the door is open. She is busy piecing together an aerial view of the island on the bed. Maruso stops at the hallway door, and Lauren moves the papers on the bed. Ooh, mail. Good. Come in. This stuff is addressed to you. She takes the mail, nods, opens one, and quickly skims over it. This is from the museum expert on heraldic nuances, checking out the Brielle for us. The seal was Admiral Brielle's personal seal, not the family's. She opens and skims a second letter. The lab reports the ink is India ink and dates to about 1780. Hmm. Paper is a sheepskin parchment commonly used by naval personnel. There was a high saline content count in both paper and leather cover, and it was sewn, not glued. Better for sea travel. Hmm. So it's legit? She nods yes and smiles at Maruso. The next morning, Carlos and Lauren are back at work on the journal and notes that are spread out all over the little pine kitchen table. Rudy is dozing on the sofa in the sitting room, lulled by the rain that is falling on the cottage roof. Stewart's plans call for a 170-foot hole dug straight down from the oak tree. It's 1776, and a young crewman, British, carries buckets of water by shoulder yoke up a worn dirt path from the Money Pit site to Smith's Cove, all uphill. Meanwhile, the flood tunnel from North Cove, now Smith's Cove, was also being dug 500 feet away at a 22% gradient. The young crewman reaches a barren part of the path that is cleared and heavily worked where a three-foot-wide trench is being dug by hand spade by 20 Micmac. The dirt is carried away by wooden skids on bumpy stone rails leading to the cove. Ensign Williams stands over them with a whip. The overworked Micmacs look thirstily at the young crewman as he approaches. Ensign Williams snaps the whip, and the frightened Micmac hastily renewed the digging. It was two and a half feet wide by four feet high, serviced by wooden skids to remove dirt and lined with stones. As the young crewman passes the Micmacs working, he looks back and sees that the trench goes underground at a steeper angle with Micmacs digging inside. This will meet the pit Brielle is constructing at about the 100 foot mark. New entry, note that Brielle mentions digging a second air shaft 100 feet north of the pit along the tunnel. This is where the floodgate will be located, but he gives no details. Rudy enters, rubbing his face. He places on the table a hand-drawn map of the island with a lighthouse route marked from 1935. That first air shaft is where a woman fell into an old closed-up sinkhole in the late 1880s. She was plowing when the ground collapsed four meters, right about here. What map is this, Rudy? A map my father and grandfather worked up of old lighthouses from the 30s. Before the war, there was talk of a tourist walk of the lights, and the town asked my grandfather to draw up a route. That sinkhole 
a couple different companies tried to dig it up or blow it up later. They call it Cave and Pit. Good. Another identifiable landmark. Rain on the 25th. Work is halted. Ah, an insight into Jonathan Stewart. The Admiral invites Stewart to his cabin. He tells Stewart that his plans are fascinatingly complex, to which Stewart, into the liquor by now, admits that not all of his knowledge came from the Academy. The year is 1764. Off the coast of a small Caribbean island on a Spanish pirate ship, a crew of 70 pirates surrounds Stuart. He's on his knees wearing blood-stained British clothing, begging for his life as the pirate captain, menacing and battle-stained, stands over him. The captain is studying Stuart, and he likes what he sees. He likes the contriteness. The captain grins eerily. Earlier in Stuart's career, he had the misfortune of being on a ship that fell prey to a pirate captain sailing to St. Dominguez, present-day Haiti. The pirate captain speaks roughly. All the while, Stuart nods fervently. The other scraggly bunch of pirates talk among themselves and begin laughing, some disgusted, some amused. Stuart nods nonstop, yes, yes. Stewart accepted forced piracy to keep his throat from being cut. In the water, off in the distance, another ship flounders and sinks slowly. The Spanish pirate captain just laughs and looks past Stewart to where the two British engineers, ragged and battle-beaten, are slumped, barely conscious. He sailed with them for nearly two years, after which he and several other engineers escaped when the ship was back in French waters. Yes, the story goes on to a small Caribbean island, sandy and warm where the Spanish pirate ship Bob's anchored in a small cove. From the sandy beach, pirates walk to a clearing in the tropical trees. Here, eight pirates are digging a deep 140-foot shaft, similar to the money pit. Stewart is among them, using a pickaxe, as the British engineers use wooden buckets and a rope to lift the dirt out of the pit. At the top, the pirate captain and a Portuguese pirate consult a map showing a Swiss bank treasure shaft. He tells Brielle he underwent a peculiar apprenticeship working with Spanish and Caribbean buccaneers skilled at limestone vaults. These operations were much like the pit steward devised using floodgates in the air shaft to stop the tunnel waters to retrieve the treasure from the pit. In the pit, a grimy pirate at the bottom sinks his spade into the ground where it stops with a jarring thud. The worker looks up as the captain and the Portuguese pirate look over the pit edge. Calisa, Calisa, Cacario. The captain smiles and laughs with satisfaction. Meanwhile, the Portuguese pirate nods and writes on the map. Stewart originally wanted to try this, but it required more manpower and time than Brielle deemed necessary. It was pirate technology? They knew how to design something like this? I didn't think it possible either. Amazing. Entry dated June 29. The pit is complete. Night falls on the Lady Grey. It's 1776. Brielle and Stuart sit in the captain's cabin at a table savoring a lavish meal. 
they are drinking and enjoying a new conspiracy. Stuart begins to write on a map he's drawn, marking Oak Island. He then copies the map onto another parchment. The flood tunnel is nearly finished. Brielle makes plans to celebrate, asking Stuart to his cabin for an extravagant meal. They discuss technicalities. Stuart details two maps of the pit area. Brielle pulls an oil lamp closer and removes the glass dome with a flourish. In all his vain, glorious, pompous stupidity, to prove how much he trusted Stuart, Brielle burned his copy of the map that night. So Stuart had the only map? Carlos takes out his pipe, lights it, and begins to puff angrily. Brielle didn't need a map. Just the island with his own separate cache and this blasted diary. A valuable artifact up in smoke. He was only trying to prove a point with Stuart. Yes, yes, Stuart is impressed with Brielle's gesture of good faith. We flash back. In Brielle's cabin, he holds his copy of the map as it burns. Stuart looks on, surprised, but fully trusting his partner. Brielle places the burning map in a metal bowl, then opens another bottle of wine and pours him and Stuart each a glass. They toast, laughing, and Stuart gets drunk. And proposes a toast. This leads to quite a drinking bout. Stuart stumbles out of Brielle's cabin. A moment later, Ensign Williams appears in the open doorway, glances after Stuart, then looks at Brielle. Brielle nods, yes. After Stuart is staggered to his own cabin, Brielle and Williams prepare two chests. In Brielle's cabin forum, Brielle and Ensign Williams fill canvas bags with sterling silver coins from a wooden chest, four feet by three feet bearing Royal British insignia. They fill two smaller wooden sea chests, three feet by two feet with the canvas bags. The two chests are locked and fastened with chains. No size is given on the chest, simply two chests. He and Williams put two million pounds sterling in canvas bags and put these into the chest. At the island shoreline, two longboats are hip deep in the water each with five Micmacs in one chest, with Brielle in one and Ensign Williams in the other. At sword point, the Micmacs are forced to row the boats, keeping close to the island. Ten natives are used to transport the chest by cart to what he calls his private depository. At the Lady Grey, still docked but out of dry dock, the Grey's crew celebrate into the night, drinking, singing, and laughing. Against the shining moonlight, a black flag with a plain white X is raised over the Lady Grey. The crew has been given a holiday and free license on the ship's liquor earlier that day. Riel's black flag is raised to discourage mainlanders. A black flag. <laughs> he did it. He really did it, uniform and all. He went pirate. What, he used the flag as a dissuasion? Indeed he did. He skips right to the deposit. He orders Williams to kill two of the Micmac. He threatens the others. No location yet. A tunnel is dug. 
the chest buried in the tunnel refilled. At the island shoreline, Brielle and Ensign Williams give in to evil once again. He and Williams kill the rest of the natives and throw them into the water on the south side of the island. They return to the ship before sunrise. Back at the Lady Grey, the crew is passed out on the ground, bottles in hand. Brielle and Ensign William dock the longboats and come ashore. They waste no time in boarding the ship, where more of the Grey's crew are asleep on the deck. Brielle and Ensign Williams make their way to the captain's quarters. The crew is passed out. Brielle and Williams go to Brielle's cabin. Finally, in Brielle's cabin, they lock the door and turn up the lamp. Quietly, they open the Royal British chest and look inside. It's one-sixth full of canvas bags with silver and copper coins spilled on top. There, they prepare a larger sea chest for burial the next day. Another chest? The dud. The one meant to be found. Carlos removes his glasses. His eyes are watering again. Lauren can't help but see how tired he is. Indeed, how tired they all are. So she begins to put the papers away. Oh, let's take a break, Dr. Sheldon. Lewis will be here soon. We'll continue after supper. A fierce storm is brewing off the coast, and in the little cottage, the lights flicker. Lauren looks worriedly to the window, searching for the reassuring flash that means the lighthouse is still watching over them. The light's on a generator, so the beam won't go out. The second wind is coming right into the rain. Captain Maruso knows what he's doing. I'm going to get some air before the rain gets worse. Your greatest fear never comes true at all And it becomes plainly clear You backed your own back up against the wall Who would you be if you weren't afraid of anything? Nothing you can't do the day you ain't afraid of anything. 
This has been the pod play Last Flag on Oak Island, adapted from the screenplay written by J.R. Jordan Baines. If you've enjoyed the new and original music you've heard in this pod play, you can stream or download these songs anywhere, anytime from wherever you get your music or simply visit podplays.com for the songs, more pod plays containing more original music and entertaining bonus content. Search for the free Podplays app in the App Store now. Great stories, epic songs. Podplays. If you enjoy the new and original music you discover in Podplays, be sure to stream or download these songs anywhere you currently get your music. Simply search the artist name Podplays, and please remember to like, follow and share with all your friends.